Hello, and welcome to Clearer Thinking with Spencer Greenberg, the podcast about ideas that matter. I'm Josh Castle, the producer of the podcast, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. In this episode, Spencer speaks with Stuart Buck about developing conceptual models and logic and statistics, the implications of publishing null results, and open science and experimental reproducibility. Stuart, welcome. It's really great to have you on. Thanks, Spencer. Uh, Great to be here. So the first question I want to talk to you is about what do you think that they should be teaching in math in schools? Because I think both you and I probably share some frustration with with what's currently taught. Yeah, I mean, this came to a head recently because I have um, kids who are in high school. And let me just preface this by saying that I myself have studied probably more math than a lot of high school students have. So I you know, went through calculus in high school. Um, then uh, in my PhD program, I studied linear algebra and econometrics and statistics. And I have a research job at a foundation uh, where I advise on academic research and use that statistics knowledge all the time. But I find myself kind of struggling to remember some of the aspects of high school math, especially geometry, that I guess that was a a pet peeve of mine, is being faced with geometry homework and trying to remember what on earth does some of this mean and why are we having to study this anyway? I mean, if I have trouble helping my kid with homework, despite my educational background and the fact that I, I use some degree, some aspects of math on a daily basis, and how much must other people who, you know, never went to college in the first place, you know, struggle with helping their kids do this. And then that, that caused me to think, well, wh- why are we teaching this in high schools in the first place? You know, not that there's anything wrong with geometry, trigonometry, calculus uh, for those who want it or for those who have uh, the aptitude and desire to, to learn those subjects. But how much of it should be mandatory? How much of it is a hurdle for some kids that or a lot of kids, maybe a vast, vast majority of kids that we'll never end up actually needing to use most of it. And so I wonder if we should restructure the high school curriculum more around some kind of basic issues of statistics and data analysis that could be more useful uh, to a lot of people in just understanding the world, understanding the news, you know, understanding basic issues about whether medicine is effective or not. Yeah, I really like your framing in terms of what actually helps you understand the world. And to that point, you know, I I always was really bothered by the emphasis on like two-dimensional geometry in high schools. It seems to me that there's certain basics of it, like you should know what a triangle is and a rectangle and be able to calculate their area. That actually comes up in life occasionally, you know, like, you know, sometimes you need to plan something in a house or whatever. But then beyond that, there's so much just esoteric stuff involving calculating complicated areas or even certain kinds of proofs. You know, and I think sometimes the justification given there is it says, well, we're, we're, you know, we're training the students' minds by giving them these like geometric proofs and so on. So what's your reaction to that kind of justification? Um, I, I think there's something to that, but I think that that argument has no logical stopping point. Like we could say we're training students' minds by teaching them all to, to memorize a bunch of famous chess games, right? I mean, that also involves a lot, a lot of skill and kind of understanding of the, you know, the geometry of chess, the, the way, the logic of it and so forth, it trains your memory. Um, but I think if we did that, or, so, or if someone proposed doing that, uh, you know, for the first time today, you would have a lot of reactions saying, well, wait a minute, like, why is that the one thing that you pick, you know, to try to train students' minds and memory and logic, you know, as opposed to anything else? Uh, we, could, we could try to push all students to learn, like, real analysis and differential equations, but, you know, would that be uh, useful to most people? 
I just don't know where that argument stops. You know, the, we, we can we can train students' minds in lots of different ways, and maybe we should uh, train their minds using something that uh, is more likely to be useful to at least you know a substantial percentage of the students one day. Yeah, picking up on a couple of threads that you mentioned there. One is opportunity cost, right? So it's not enough to argue, oh, this thing has some value to teach. You have to say, well, but does it have more value than other options that we can teach, right? And so like the some value bar is just not a high enough bar to jump over. And then the other thing is, I think a lot of times when defending like standard educational practices, people will talk about like spillover effects. They're like, well, sure that this thing doesn't really matter and we don't really expect them to remember it, but like, we're enhancing their ability to do this other you know, secondary thing. Like, you know, we're giving them proofs in two-dimensional geometry because we want to turn them into logical thinkers. But then with those kinds of arguments, I immediately say, well, isn't there a better way to just train that skill directly? Why are you doing it so indirectly? It seems to me it'd be much better to actually teach kids logic, actual logic, rather than hope that they learn logic through, you know, proving things about triangles. Yeah, that, I absolutely agree with that. And to the extent I'm familiar with it, there's a whole kind of educational literature on transfer of learning. Transfer meaning like you learn subject A and it transfers over to subject B. And so there, you'll find those arguments commonly in educational context. People will say, well, if you study music, that will translate into not only knowing music, but being better at math. Because guess what? There's a correlation out in the world of people who are good at music and at math. But that doesn't mean... That, I mean, correlation is not causation. Just because they, that, that those skills might be correlated some of the time does not mean that training people at music turns them into better mathematicians. And in fact, that's not true. It doesn't hold up when studied in a rigorous way. You know, so if you want people to learn math, teach them math. If you want people to learn music, teach them music and justify it on its own terms, not, not because of some benefit to something else that you could have been teaching directly. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I think, you know, to the point about uh, transfer learning to other domains, I think most of those results are kind of depressingly negative in that people seem to barely generalize the pattern. So if you teach them X, they're probably not going to generalize it even to like slightly different stuff unless you actually help them do that. So I think that that means it's, you know, not even enough to just say teach them math or not even enough to just teach them proofs. It's like, well, what kind of proofs do you actually want to have them do? Because they're probably not going to automatically generalize that to all different kinds of proofs. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. You used to hear arguments about, like, for example, teaching Latin, that teaching Latin would somehow uh, produce these extra cognitive benefits. And again, I don't think there's any evidence for that either. It's, it's sure, memorizing lots of uh, forms of nouns and verbs might build your memory as to those things, but it doesn't mean that you're now any more logical or have a better memory as to anything else. Well, to be fair, Latin is definitely the best language to cast magical spells in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I totally agree. People will be like, oh, well, Latin helps you learn romance languages. It's like, well, you know, it helps you learn them much faster and better. Actually, just studying that language that you want to learn. So, uh, yeah. Exactly. If you want to learn Spanish, just go learn Spanish. Exactly. So, so tell me a little bit about what would be in your ideal high school math curriculum. Yeah, I mean, I think some basics of probability and statistics. And when I say statistics, I don't mean like the just hardcore mathematical statistics. You know, I don't think you need to be able to like, derive the you know, formula for a standard error and you know, why you might divide by n minus one instead of n. I'm not talking about that, I'm, but I'm talking about a more of a conceptual understanding of the world through statistics. People need to learn about, for example, why a randomized trial of a vaccine, such as we now see with COVID, 
why that's a useful tool for gaining knowledge about whether the vaccine works. People need to understand the difference between correlation and causation. People need to understand, ideally, some sort of like Bayesian interpretation of probability. So, you know, the, there's some famous studies where you give even doctors uh, a scenario and you say, well, look, only only 1% of people have this type of cancer and your test is 90% accurate. So if, if someone turns up and has a positive test, what's the chance that they actually have the cancer? And people usually get that, that sort of problem wrong because they don't have an intuitive understanding of you know, how to take into account the base rate at which something happens. But I think those kinds of concepts are incredibly valuable in, in just understanding the world and understanding the implications of a medical test that you just took, um, understanding how to think about your own health and nutrition. And so I think those, those ideas are much more relevant to just kind of a baseline understanding of the world than to pick on high school geometry again, than geometry and you know, some of the more esoteric concepts in trigonometry, et cetera. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I would also add to that list things like the mean, which, you know, a lot of people kind of have an intuitive sense, but I think it's just such an important statistic that like it's worth really understanding it. And then the median and understanding how that differs from the mean and like when would you use one, when would you use the other? Those to me feel like really critical. Also, I think just like a basic understanding of probability distributions, like just the idea that you can have a probability distribution and that it can have different properties, you know, can be wider, you know, with a higher standard deviation or, or, or narrower. To me, this is just like the bread and butter of like making sense of the world is, is having these concepts. Exactly. It applies to, to so many aspects of the world, to so many subjects. So yeah, I absolutely agree with what you just said. And also, it's really critical for understanding science and like why science does what it does and why, insofar as it can answer questions, why can it answer the questions as well? I do wonder whether like science denialism is connected to like people not really understanding why science is the way it is. That, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a bigger topic, I guess. <laughs> that, but uh, yeah, I think I, I do think people need kind of a basic understanding of just a, how, how do scientists reason about the world? And, and I mean, science, the, the root of the word science, you know, to go back to Latin is, is really just knowledge, knowledge and understanding. So in a way, I think we need to get away from the idea that there's some magical category of human beings called scientists who have some, you know, special yeah, understanding of the world that no one else has. I think we all can participate in scientific type reasoning about the world. It's just through knowing these sorts of principles, you know, whether it's mathematical probability, you know, or, or just principles of reasoning, we all can participate in better ways of reasoning and gaining access to knowledge about the world. It's not just the prerogative of someone else with the label scientist. It's just so hard to imagine a world where like everyone was trained in this stuff you know, where in a presidential debate, they would say, well, you know, this thing followed this thing. But of course, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation. And I'm only 80% confident that they're causally connected. You know, like, just the possibility of that is just like, no, there's no way that could ever happen. But but if you think about it, if like, if really you had a population of people that were all trained in this like bread and butter, like how to think stuff, you could imagine actually people being like, oh, yeah, actually respect that candidate more because he assigned a probability to his statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, so many people on both sides of the aisle are all too willing to confuse correlation and causation and to assume, well, you were president at the time that something happened, so therefore you caused it to happen. We could just get people to understand that that's not always true or, or not even often very true. That, that would be a huge advance in public discourse. I, I've heard people say that often presidents are blamed for like whatever the last president did. And so it's just like 
a sliding door of like who gets the blame, basically. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that's another thing. I mean, presidents maybe do have some effect on the economy eventually, but it surely isn't immediate. It's probably with a long lag time behind it. So you're probably getting blame or credit for, you know, I mean, to the extent presidents do have an effect on that, you're probably assigning blame and credit to the wrong person. So let's talk about p-values. And I want to just mention, I want to mention a, a fact about you that I love, which is, do you want to tell the story about the uh, conference and, and p-values? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I was at this conference at Stanford several years ago, and it was a conference of people interested in what you might call meta science, people interested in thinking about how to improve science. So there were a lot of people there from different disciplines, but there were statisticians there, people from medicine, epidemiology, and there was a journalist there, a science, science journalist, uh, Christy Ashwinden. And she was kind of uh, going up to people and she she would say things like, "Well, hey, I'm just asking folks some questions, you know, about the about the conference about meta science. You know, do you mind if we step out the hall, you know, ask you a few questions?" So she said that to me, and I said, "Sure." So we so we walk out the hall. Little did you know it was a statistical trap she was putting you in. Right, exactly. It was, and so so the first question she turns her camera on. First question was, "So, in a layman's terms, explain what a p value is." And then she created this kind of hilarious video of all these, you know, top professors, professors from Stanford, et cetera, kind of just laughing uh, cheapishly as they realize, okay, how do, how do I explain that in a layman's terms? <laughs> um, so, so yeah, it was, it was it was pretty funny the way she ambushed people. So I saw her article and I was like going through it, and I, I believe she said you were the only person that gave the correct explanation of the p value of those she interviewed. So I thought that was very impressive. Well, maybe someone else gave a correct answer, but I, I mean, I guess that I gave it in a way that she thought, you know, a lay person could understand. So basically said, uh, my answer is something like that, you know, imagine that you're flipping a coin and you wonder if it's a fair coin or not. If it's a fair coin, leave aside the question of whether there is such a thing as unfair coin. But, but if it's a fair coin, then if you flip it a hundred times, you would expect around 50 heads, 50 tails. It might not be exactly, it might be 49, 51, 48, 52. But the further away you get from 50-50, the less likely it would be if it's actually a fair coin. So the logic of a p-value is you flip the coin 100 times, you assume it's fair, you assume that it, it should be 50-50, but then if the data turn up 60-40, one way or the other, then you ask yourself, what is the probability that I would get this result or something worse from a fair coin where the true result should be 50-50? And that's what a p-value is basically telling you. What's the probability that you would see data this extreme or worse or more extreme if, in fact, there is no effect there to be found. Yeah, that, that's a great explanation, yeah. That's the best I could do, but it's still something I find a little frustrating because it's not all that intuitive. And given the absence of an effect, what is the probability of data this extreme or worse? That's not a, an intuitive explanation. It's something, I mean, there have been surveys I've seen of, of even statisticians who, who you know, get the definition wrong in some technical way. And it's also not clear that it's the, the most useful question to be asking about data when you're trying to make decisions about the world. So, so yeah, I think p-values are a little, a little frustrating in that way. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, you know, almost every paper in social science has a p-value somewhere, you know, at least if it's quantitative social science. And so, you know, this is just used constantly um, from, from almost all of these scientific findings. And as you point out, there's something very awkward about the definition of it. And so the human mind just wants to keep mapping it onto things that are less awkward, 
like, oh, what's the probability that the result is true or thing, you know, things like that, which in fact, it's not quite what it means because it's saying, well, if there's no effect, how likely is this to be? But, you know, so it's conditional, whereas your brain wants to just say, oh, how likely am I to be right? And so I think what the brain wants to do here is kind of use a more Bayesian way of thinking. That's sort of more natural for our brains being like, what's the probability of this? Would you agree with that? Yeah. I I mean, I I think, in fact, that what we typically want to know about the world or about a a study is the complete inverse of a p-value. So p-value is telling you, given no effect, what's the probability of this data? And what you really want to know is, given this data, what's the probability of an effect? And you can't just flip around probabilities like that. So, you know, you can't take a p-value and convert it into what you really want to know is, which is, given that I did this experiment or this study and I have this data before me, how confident should I be that the effect is really there and it's really meaningful? That's the kind of natural interpretation that people want to take from it, but it's actually the, the flip side of a p-value. Well, that's a really interesting point, but, but I also want to add a, a, like just a little bit of nuance there, which is it's not even really evaluating the probability of the data. It's evaluating the probability of getting a result this extreme or more extreme, right? So it's not even just flipping it to the other side of the equation. There's something we- even weirder going on. Yeah, it's asking about the probability of data that is more extreme than what you have before you, which is kind of weirdly abstract. And it's not clear why that's the reason you would want to make a decision in terms of your actions. Or... But I think uh, the way that I think about p-value, so now there's this like whole p-value war, and like some people think that journals like should make you not report them. And other people say, oh, instead of using the standard cutoff of 0.05 to publish, we should lower that cutoff, maybe make it 0.01 or whatever. Um, you know, like, you know, kind of flame war is going back and forth. But I, from my point of view, and I'm curious to get your reaction to this. I think of a p-value as like just one tool in the toolkit, but a very useful tool. And basically what it tells you is whether you can reasonably rule out sampling error. In other words, let's say you, know, you, you measure something on a population if you did it only on a small population, you might get a lot of variability just based on like which p- particular people happened to enroll in your study, right? Like if you do it on 20 people, you got you know you pick 20 people at random, you happen to get those 20 instead of another random 20, maybe that would change your result. And so the way I think about it is if your p-value is really low, you essentially, for the most part, can rule out sampling error. In other words, that your result is just due to like the particular participants or particular data points you got by luck. And that really, that's it. That's all it really tells you. What, what do you think of that interpretation? Um, I think, that, yeah, I think p-values are one analytical tool. But let, let me add to what you just said, though, because I'm I'm not sure I agree full fullheartedly, and so I, maybe there, maybe there's something to clarify. So the way I see it, if the the problem with small sample sizes is both that you can have a lot of false negatives and some false positives. So if you study a sample size of twenty for any sort of typical like human level effect, whether it's you know medicine or psychology or whatever, sample size of twenty is you'll prob- it's probably too low a statistical power to be able to get a low p value and to say that there's an effect. So there, there's probably a lot of true effects that you'll miss because it's just you know, twenty is too small of a sample size and it's going to be too noisy. But sometimes because of sampling error you might end up with several kind of fluke results in your small sample size of 20. And then you find a low p-value because you've got this outsized kind of uh, flukish result. And then, then you run to the presses and publish something and say, wow, a huge effect, low p-value, must be true. And in fact, I've even seen Jim Heckman, um, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist, literally make the argument that because there are a couple of, uh, you know, studies of preschool that had super small sample sizes, um, 
but but also found a large effect, that means we can be more more confident that they're true. And I think that's just the exact opposite uh, of of what you should conclude. If you have this very small sample size and a large effect that shows that the small p value, um, you ought to be a little suspicious and like go back and try to replicate it. Yeah, so those are all important points, and I, and I think I agree with you on all of them. So I was making a more like kind of uh, discrete technical point, which is that if you get a very small p-value, you basically on just a single result, like you did one calculation, that's it. You get a really small p-value, then you can basically rule out sampling error as an explanation. So you can basically rule out it being due to noise. Mm, okay, yeah. That that's all I meant. But but the, in practice, if someone reports a p-value of you know 0.04 on a sample size of 20, I think you and I both agree that there's a substantial probability that that result is not going to hold up if you if you kind of look into it further or try to replicate it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I think I find it very silly, the idea of throwing them away, because I'm like, well, this is actually a really good tool for ruling out sample error. That's it, uh, you know, uh, sampling error. So, um, so that's how I try to use it in my work. But of course, there's, you know, just to make sure we cover our bases, there's absolutely nothing special about the 0.05 cutoff that is so often used in science that's completely arbitrary. But that being said, I think there is some value in having a cutoff because imagine you there was no cutoff whatsoever and people could like publish a p equals 0.2. I can't imagine that would actually make things better rather than making things worse. So what do you think about that? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. I mean, we're we're hitting on publication bias and other issues here. I mean, so and, and other issues. What how often you should be able to publish null results, which is a, a bigger question too. But yeah, I'm very wary of the idea of cutoffs. Uh, you know, Andrew Gelman is a statistician at Columbia. He has this great, uh, really short article. If I can get the title right, it's, it's something like the difference between statistically significant and statistically insignificant is statistically insignificant. And that's kind of a mouthful. I know for, for the listeners, that's probably like hard to picture what he's saying. But he's, what he's saying is basically that uh, one example would be if one study with a p-value of 0.049 and another study with a p-value of 0.051, studying the same topic, those two findings are not actually significantly different from each other. So there's no reason to privilege one over the other. And he even goes further and says that kind of arbitrarily small differences in your population and in your sampling and so forth, that you can end up with effects that look like they have p-values that differ even more than that, but uh, but are not actually significantly different from each other, you know, in terms of the two weighing the two effects against each other. So by by what he says, I would say the logic of, of drawing a, a, a bright line sort of cutoff or threshold just failed in its own terms, because if there's no significant difference on either side, findings that are close to that cutoff, then the, the argument for having a cutoff kind of collapses, at least in that area. It gets, it gets really fuzzy. Um, but then should there be a cutoff for publishing? I just don't know. I mean, I think we need more null results in the literature, I mean, and I think if maybe we can debate about what what do you consider a positive result versus a null result? You know, if the p value is 0.2 rather than 0.1 or 0.05, is that null, uh, or is that just mean you have kind of less less reason to think that the the data are all that different from chance? But you know, evidence is on a continuum, um, so I don't know. I guess I'm uncomfortable saying that in some cases we know that the data is different from uh, chance. And in other cases, we know perfectly that it is from chance. I mean, I feel like it's, it should be more of a continuous sort of gray area, really, most of the time. Yes, yeah, so you bring up so many interesting issues. So, so first of all, just for those who don't know, the, the phrase statistically significant refers to a result that has p smaller than 0.05. And 
So that that phrase, I think, has created a lot of problems because it's become to mean in many people's minds like, oh, it's statistically significant. It means I found something. And if it's not statistically significant, it means I didn't. And I think you and I would both agree that the way evidence works is has nothing to do with thresholds. It's a continuous thing. So from the point of view of actual evidence, a p equals 0.04 and a p equals 0.05 and a p equals 0.06 are all essentially just about equivalent uh, because evidence comes on a continuum. And by introducing this like phrase, this so significance, it, it like, unfortunately, due to the way the human mind works, tends to push us into this dichotomy of it worked or it didn't work. If it's just below the line of p equals 0.05, we say it worked. And if it's just above, we say it didn't work. And that, that's silly. But then there's a separate question of like, what should the standards in you know, scientific publication be? And I certainly agree that it would be great to publish certain kinds of null results. And you and I have actually uh, discussed this a little bit before. I think that the general call for publishing all null results, I don't really buy the value of it. Because if you just pick random ideas out of a hat, almost all of them will be false. You know, if you say like, does X work for Y? Well, the answer is almost certainly no. And I think publishing a whole bunch of like random ideas that researchers came up with it, our prior probability on them is really low anyway. They're just random. Then those, I don't think those publications really are valuable. Uh, what I find really valuable is if someone finds a null result for something that is believed to have a positive result. Like if they try, you know, intervention X for outcome Y, and it's generally believed that it works and they find it doesn't work, then that's a really important null result. And that should definitely be published. Uh, so any reaction there? I agree. Yeah. I, w- I would not suggest that we publish all null results because you're quite right. It, like there's probably a near infinity of possible null results, both because you're asking a stupid question or because y- you might have studied a reasonable question in an incompetent way and just failed to find the result that should have been there. So yeah, I wouldn't want to publish all null results. But I mean, I agree that publishing null results where there's been a prior positive result is good. But I mean, I guess I would also extend it a little further. I would say publishing null results could be valuable anytime you're asking a theoretically interesting question, a question where the answer would help advance the field, whether it the answer is yes or no, or Hard to tell. We need more exploration. Yeah, well said. Hey, everyone. So as you've heard me say many times, the tagline of this podcast is the podcast about ideas that matter. That isn't intended just to be catchy or pithy or word salady. We actually really care about collecting, organizing, and presenting ideas that can help you improve your life and the lives of those around you. But to help us increase the scale of our impact to more people, we'd like to make a request. This podcast could really benefit from having more ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help because they allow others to find the podcast. If you haven't yet left a review, for instance, on Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate it if you consider doing so now. Reviews not only help us to spread the ideas discussed on this show to more people, but they also make it easier to book amazing guests for the show. We'd be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to write a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your support. There's a lot of psychological studies that were looking at some question that might not have been all that theoretically interesting, such as, you know, I mean, just to exaggerate a little bit, but like, does being in a room with the, the color purple make you more or less anxious? Is that an interesting question? I mean, if you find a null result for that question, I mean, people go, well, of course not. Why would it? 
But if you find a positive result, then the psychological literature say, oh, wow, we found some uh, priming effect on the human brain. So and then we'll come up with some theory after the fact as to why the color purple has this effect. But it, if it had been some other color, who knows what the result would have been? I mean, it's, it's not a, that sort of line of inquiry is not as doesn't have a strong theoretical basis in the first place. It's more just it more strikes me again, not as a psychologist and you know, not to be too dismissive, but it strikes me as like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what'll stick and then publishing the stuff that's stuck. But it seems to me much, much better if you build a science on like asking important substantive theoretical questions where the answer needs to be known one way or the other. Then if it's a null result and you did a good job, like you didn't just like mess up the experiment some way, then that that null result it should be informative to the field about like what what is it, what does or doesn't work in that particular as to that particular question or what might be a dead end. That makes sense to me. I, I would add though, also sometimes there's really applied results like does purple reduce anxiety? Like if that actually were true, that'd actually be pretty useful. So I, I do think there's a role for that. But I guess the way that I break that down, and I may have mentioned this on the previous podcast, I'm not sure I've done too many at this point. Is um, you know I think about the most useful science worth funding as, as generally falling into three categories. The theoretical results that are very fundamental, which I think is what you were talking about. Like it's an important topic in that field. Uh, like, so uh, just as an example in, in physics, that might be something like gravity. Okay. If we understood gravity better, that would be interesting because it's like very fundamental or in psychology, maybe like identity is a really important topic. If we understood it better, that would be good. And then the second area I think about is just applied areas where you're like, well, if we had this result, we could just go do something very useful with it right now. Like curing cancer would be the classic example. Or in psychology, it might be like making people less anxious. Like, you know, even if it's not interesting, theoretically, if we can make people less anxious, great. And then the third area that I think about being really important to fund in science is stuff that makes science go faster. So tool building or new methods or things like this that could support better science in the future. Not to say that there aren't any valuable scientific enterprises outside of these three areas. I think there are. But I think these are the, the three most important from my perspective. So going off of that, though, in what area, if any, would you say null results are important to include or perhaps less important to include? Great question. So with the first category of like fundamental results, often those null results actually are important because they're, they're you know, it's like, hey, we thought this thing about gravity might be true, but it's not. Like, oh, cool. Like, like, people might be really interested in that. And maybe that could... Even if your theory was somewhat esoteric, maybe that helped guide other theories away from like that idea. In the applied stuff, I think it's most useful when it's an um, applied result that other people are already using in practice. If you can say, hey, you know that thing you're doing it actually doesn't work, or where it's just general belief that it works, then, then I think that's when they should be published. But if, if it's an applied result that like nobody cares about and nobody's using, nobody believes, you know, like your example of just picking a random color and seeing if it does a random thing, those don't seem very valuable to me to publish. And then on the sort of, um, on the you know, tool building and method side there, I would just say mainly if you discover that a method doesn't do what it claims, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I agree. I mean, I, th I think the, the first category might be where null results are the most valuable. I guess what I was trying to say earlier is that those other two categories, null results would still be valuable there if what was going on was, you know, was thought to be based on some sort of strong theoretical basis. So when it comes to curing cancer, for example, like you could have a, millions of possible null results. Like you could test every one of thousands of different foods and spices yeah, in an RCT against every possible type of cancer. Have you ever seen that chart that says everything both cures and causes cancer? Yes, that's that's an amazing chart. But uh, it's 
yeah, that's what you would end up with, basically. You would end up with a lot of just random noise. Um, so, So those would not be substantively interesting or theoretically grounded questions. And so publishing the thousandth null result that says, hey, guess what? This random ingredient also doesn't cure this random type of cancer. That that doesn't seem to be a great advance. Um, but if there's some strong theoretical result for thinking that, I don't know, turmeric uh, has some sort of uh, curative pro- or preventative properties as to cancer, you know, and if, yeah, so, so people not only think it you know, for whatever random reason they have, but if there's like some strong reason, like maybe somebody's done some work on the molecular mechanisms or done some cell biology work, some work in the lab and found, found some, that it does kill cells, um, then, I, then I guess that's what I'm saying. It, that's when it would be interesting to have like a, a, a null result on that. Right, because it kind of feeds back into the, the theoretical. Right, exactly. So let's talk about open science and reproducibility. Do you want to say a little bit like how you got interested in that and the, kind of what your role has been in that? Sure. So um, I, I don't know if I've said much about my role generally, but so I'm at uh, Arnold Ventures, uh, formerly the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. It's uh, a foundation that's been around technically for about 10 years. I've been here for about eight of those years as a director and then VP of research. And we got interested in this problem of reproducibility really early on, so like in 2012 or so. Um, and the reason is that as a foundation, we're super interested in questions about evidence-based policy, questions about using evidence in government, or just evidence to improve people's lives. And then we started noticing, and John Arnold in particular started noticing, that there were these kind of rumblings about reproducibility problems in psychology is where I think he, he and I both first noticed it around the summer of 2012. Can you define reproducibility for those that don't know? Sure. Well, I mean, there's lots of different, uh, it, you can get really technical, but the most basic kind of simplistic definition is if somebody does an experiment, it, let's say psychology, someone does an experiment, publishes it, other people try to do the same experiment and try their best to see if it works. And it turns out they can't get it to work. And so they say, well, look, that, that experiment wasn't reproducible for some reason. It's, uh, you know, it, it, you can then argue about what the reason is. Maybe the, maybe the second set of experimenters just didn't do a good job. Maybe the first uh, experimenter was publishing false results for some reason or engaging in research practices that might have skewed the data one way or another. Or maybe there's just some mechanism that's, or factor that just isn't well understood. Maybe there's something different about the population that the second group studied compared to the first group, and no one knows what that is yet, and you need to figure out how different populations react to different you know, psychological tests. So there's a number of reasons for this, but you know, all of which is to explain well, why is why is that first result not reproducible in, in, in the second study? And I'll just add, there's sort of this hierarchy of you know, replication or reproducibility, whatever you want to call it, where you know at the very bottom of the hierarchy, it's like, if you use the exact data and exact code that the original research team used, can you get the same result as them? Like, just run their code on their data. Like, we should hope so, right? And then you could be like, okay, well, what if instead of using their code, like I write my own code to do the analysis, but I'm still using the exact data set that they used. And then, you know, you've got a level above that. Like, well, what if I, you know, actually, what if I go recruit people that are just like the people that they tested on, and then I run their code on that data, um, but I've collected this new data now, and et cetera, all the way up to at the very top of the hierarchy, you got like conceptual replications where you're like, I'm recruiting new people, so they're not the same people. And I'm actually not exactly doing the same study, but it's like conceptually related. And so if their study produced a real effect, I'd expect my study to also reproduce a, new, a real effect, even though it's like actually testing something different. And so 
So I guess we can be talking about anywhere on this whole chain. Yeah, and that's that's what makes it hard. That's when, you know, when you said define reproducibility, I, I was thinking, okay, which at which level? <laughs> because uh, you know, there's so many different ways that, that people talk about it and they often use the same I mean, they'll use terms like replicability and reproducibility, sometimes interchangeably, sometimes to you mean one versus the other, and then some sometimes the reverse in different fields. And so it's it's there's no kind of universal terminology here. But yeah, the, the very most basic is just rerun the, the same code and the same data and hopefully get the same results. But even into that, uh, most fields often fall a little short, unfortunately. Is that mainly just because you don't have access to the data or code or, or because uh, even if you get it, you can't get the same result? Often it's because they don't have access to the same data and code. There are some fields or some journals, actually. I think the American Journal of Political Science is one journal that, that started a program a while back to, to rerun the data and code for the empirical articles it published. And they found that most of the time, at least for the, the first few years, that they did find some errors, some mistakes, they had to be corrected. I don't know how many of them were actually like huge major errors, but um, it, it's really hard to rerun other people's data and code on a second computer sometimes because coding practices in academia are not the same as uh, in industry. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I, you know, I work with a lot of software engineers and I'm a programmer myself. I've been programming since I was a kid. And I assume that even a good programmer will accidentally introduce a bug, you know, every, you know, 10 to 30 lines of code. Like that's just a given. And so it's not about not creating bugs. It's about having really rigorous processes to like catch the bugs before they cause a problem. And especially before you like get your final result or it goes into production or whatever. And so a lot of good software engineering is about doing things that, that help reduce bugs, but also catch bugs uh, when they occur because they, they're sort of inevitable. And I think one thing I see in academic programming is it just feels like they don't have a lot of those best practices and how to catch bugs. Yeah, I mean, there's of course, there's a huge variety in academia. Some, some people in academia are, are great and they're aware of these principles. Absolutely. Yeah, I think to, to a lot of academics, the idea of, of you know, testing your code for bugs or, or doing code review with somebody independent would be like the poor, they've never never heard of it. So, so yeah, the, the best practices still need to kind of make their way into a lot of academia. It reminds me of that example. If I recall correctly, it was some kind of economic study related to the debt of countries and uh, and you know how it can be problematic if countries have a large amount of debt. And it was being like cited in Congress or, or something like this. And then someone discovered that there was literally, they'd used Excel, Microsoft Excel, and there was like one of these issues where like they hadn't copied the formula to all the rows or something. It was like this incredibly basic mistake and it just completely overturned the finding when someone just fixed the Excel error. Yeah, that, that's, you're talking about the Reinhard Rogoff issue to, right, um, right. to uh, scholars at Harvard, uh, you know, supposedly prestigious university but yeah they're, they're, they wrote this uh, famous article in the late 2000s about in the height of the kind of economic crash uh, and published a book uh, that followed up on these claims that uh, if you have debt that's too high then that you know kills your economic growth and yeah some I think it was a grad student or a post it was either a grad student or a postdoc somehow got them to send him the Excel file <laughs> that they'd use and yeah you're exactly right they just they were analyzing I forget what, what it was, something like 21 countries, and they just left out some of them because they didn't copy the formula into the, the right rows. So, yeah, kind of amazing. But, you know, I have a, I have a hard time, like, being tough on them about that because, you know, as a mathematician and a, and a programmer, like, I make mistakes like that constantly. And it's really just about, you know, being, trying to make sure to catch them 
but like inevitably, occasionally one is going to slip through. Like almost nobody is so good that they never accidentally let a result, like something like that slip through. And, you know, I think they were really unlucky that this was like their, their really big finding and then they published a book and all this stuff. Like that's, you know, disastrously unlucky. I don't know. I, I guess I might be a little harder on them. Because I mean, like, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously it's easy to introduce bugs into code. I mean, like, you know, you write something in R and... You know, you have a, a, a quotation mark and or missing a quotation mark somewhere. I mean, just there a comma that's in the wrong place, like, and it spits out some completely inscrutable error message at you. And so, yeah, obviously that that can happen to anyone. But that, I mean, that, come on, this was an Excel chart that was pretty simple. I mean, this is like, you know, if you're working in Python and you can't do your first little "Hello World" like command, um, you mess that up. Well, maybe you're maybe you're a much more precision operator than I am with this stuff. But I have made so many little mistakes when I'm doing calculations. Fair enough. Fair. But on the other hand, you know, if you're going to go publish a book about it, double check your work. Seriously, double check your work. This is not like looking through thousands of lines of code. I mean, it's just uh, an Excel chart that was basically on one screen. I mean, how how far does that to double check? Yeah, and and you know, with uh, great power comes great responsibility, right? Like you've got to you've got to yeah. up your game and double check. Everyone's going to make mistakes, but you got to double check. But, you know, I think one thing that people don't realize is that if you write some code to do an analysis and it kind of gets the result you expected, you're probably not going to double check that code. But if it doesn't get the result you expect, you're going to be like, hmm, there must be a bug somewhere. Let me go find it. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if there are a lot of these results where they got what they kind of thought they were going to get and if the code actually doesn't work at all. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, you know, I, I think to broaden that point out a little bit, I think that Andy Dick's book, thinking, thinking of bets. That's it. And she makes this great point in there that we often don't question our successes. Like we do something that succeeds, we're all too happy to say, "Yeah, we did a good job." Um, if we do something that fails, then we go back and say, "Well, okay, postmortem time. Let's see what happened. What did you do wrong?" And she said, like the best poker players, as I recall, sure. If you lose a hand, you go and question, you know, what what could you have done differently. But the best poker players will also go take a successful hand where they won, and instead of just feeling good about it. They say, let's go back and look, because maybe maybe I made a decision that actually was not a good decision at the time, and I just got lucky. Um, so you need to qu- be questioning your successes as much as, as your failures, and do a, do a post-mortem, in effect, on your successes to try to figure out if you, you know, if your decision-making process was actually going well. So I, so I would say that, w- that should apply to science and the code as well. Like, if you do something that seems like a quote-unquote works, like maybe you were lucky, maybe you maybe it was a fluke. Like maybe you should actually still double check and make sure that you were making the right choices. Totally, yeah. And uh, adopt unit tests, which is one of the best practices that engineers do, and we try to use them on our engineering teams. I, and I, I really think scientists could benefit from implementing unit tests, where you basically write code that's designed to test your code. It's sort of indispensable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. But let's go. Let's go back to the open science. So I, I, I derailed you. <laughs> Do you want to keep telling your story? Yeah. So yeah, in terms of the Arnold Foundation, we we looked around and said, wait a minute, we we want to be evidence based in philanthropy and what we believe about you know public policy from criminal justice to education to health, etc. Um, but what do we think about this fact that maybe a lot of research isn't all that reliable or reproducible? Maybe just the positive stuff is getting into the literature. And maybe some of it isn't true or, or won't turn up again for whatever reason. And maybe there's a lot of null results or unexciting results that actually were true, but no one wanted to publish them or bothered to publish them. And so, you know, just take an example. Like if, if you wanted to support, you know, education reform or, or 
you know, curriculum reform in, in schools. And there's, there's a lot of publication bias and a lot of bias in the way that, that experiments are run and analyzed, then you could be completely misled as to what actually works to improve kids' outcomes in schools. Because the stuff that didn't work, people didn't bother to publish it. And the stuff that supposedly works, uh, they, they published that, but then not, not, not so much the, the failed replication. So how do you know what to fund as a philanthropist if you're trying to ba- base your decisions on evidence and you're not sure what to trust in the evidence. So that's that's the kind of origin of our interest in this broader meta issue of how do you know what to trust in science? How do you improve the processes of research? And how do we get the you know academic journals to prioritize things that might improve the reproducibility of research? You would think that many large foundations and, and other institutions, including ones like the U.S. government, would have a huge vested interest in making sure science is reliable because so many decisions and fund allocations are, are effectively based on studies. Yeah, you, you would think so. And it's not totally absent. I mean, there, there are some other foundations, uh, the Sloan Foundation, the Templeton Foundation, um, a few others that have had some interest in this. There are certain kind of small areas that, or small kind of grant-making projects that NSF, for example, and the National Science Foundation, they had a call for papers on replication at one point. I don't know that it was a ton of money compared to their overall budget. NIH, National Institutes of Health, which is the main biomedical funder here in the United States, they are interested in this issue. For So, for example, they just released a rule on data sharing from studies that they fund in, in biomedicine. So, yeah, funders have some interest in this, but it is kind of a meta issue. I know I've talked with people who are you know, high up in leadership at NIH before, and they will candidly say off the record that it, that, it, that it's tough to, to get much funding for this kind of, of inquiry, that, uh, that what you see is successful if you're at NIH is pushing out lots of money to support biomedical research at labs. And it's really hard to pull back and say, wait, let's, let's give less money to biomedical research labs and more money to questioning the work of what the other biomedical research labs are doing. That, that introduces a kind of a level of controversy, and it's, it's, it seems less exciting than, you know, pushing for the next big new thing in whatever field you're in. Yeah, it just seems so valuable because, I mean, we now have abundant evidence that substantial portions of findings are wrong. I mean, on the, you know, in the social science realm, you've had these big attempts to replicate lots of different studies in top journals. My takeaway from that is that some, if you randomly sample from top journals, probably something like 40% of the main findings will, will not replicate. Is that kind of roughly the sense you have as well? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know what would happen with random sampling. One of the earlier projects that we funded in this area was the reproducibility project in psychology, which was published in Science in 2015. And what they did was they took 100 original studies that had been published in a handful of uh, top psychology journals in 2008. Um, they found that you know, when they tried to rerun the experiments with you know, hundreds of scientists around the world collaborating with them, that only about 36 to 39% in their view were successfully replicated, as in it found the same effect you know, in, the se- in the second experiment. The, the rest were a little harder to interpret, but one way of interpreting it was that uh, another 30% or so were kind of inconclusive, and another 30% or so of the experiments, uh, you would say it just really didn't stand up. The first experiment just didn't really replicate in the second experiment. So, but, but as to your question, 
what's the average across science? I mean, I think that's that's the really difficult question to answer. I mean, I think it just it really varies depending on on the context on the field. Yeah, so I don't know what you would get from a random sampling. It would it would very be very context dependent. Right, and I, yeah, I agree. It's it's very hard to tell, and there's there's so many complicating factors. Like in that study, there were those studies that were sort of inconclusive on the one hand. Another thing is that not all the studies were perfect replications because it's just not always possible to do a perfect replication. So you always have a danger that the replication attempt didn't you know faithfully reproduce the the correct concept or the correct design or whatever. So that's also a muddying factor. Then you have the fact that there's a selection bias where it's like people are, are choosing which ones to replicate. They're kind of volunteering to do it. So maybe they're picking ones that are easier to do, which means that maybe some of the harder to do studies are just being left all together. So I, you know, I don't know how to make sense of all this to get one number. But I think you know, a lot of people were disturbed by, by the percentage that didn't replicate in this, in this trial. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that, that something may or may not replicate. But I mean, I think, I think at a minimum, what you can take away from this is that we often don't have a, a very strong theoretical understanding of what's going on in, in science. Because one of the most common explanations for why something, experiment A might not replicate an experiment B is that, well, well, something must have changed. Okay, well, what was it that changed and why did that matter? And, it, and if that is indeed the factor that matters, then what does that tell us about our understanding of what's going on there. So in the reproducibility project in psychology, in one case, an excuse was made that, uh, well, the original study was done in Florida and the replication was done in Virginia or something like that. And and, and just a, in a different college town that's laid out a little differently. No, oh, man, <laughs> if, if psychology is that brittle, we're screwed. Could the act of answering open-ended questions about yourself give you new, important insights? It turns out the answer is yes, if those questions are selected in just the right way. After running a series of five scientific studies, Clearer Thinking has discovered a specific set of practical, yet rarely asked questions that 83% of people reported were valuable for them to answer, and 78% said they would recommend to others. A remarkably high 88% of people even reported that they enjoyed answering these questions. And Clearer Thinking is now making those questions available to you for free on clearerthinking.org so that you can benefit from them as well. You can also order a beautiful physical card deck of the life-changing questions so that you can use the questions to bond with friends and family. We think you'll be surprised just how valuable answering these open-ended questions about yourself can be. To answer the free life-changing questions or to find Clearer Thinking's other free tools and mini-courses, head to clearerthinking.org. So yeah, if you can't you know generalize from Florida to Virginia or you know from one town to another, then that really calls into question well both both how reliable and generalizable your science is, but it also calls into question like well how much do you really understand about why certain psychological effects take place or not? Yeah, and you know some people might say well you know maybe it's just social science that's you know messed up and has this problem. Do you want to talk a little bit about the sort of biological results as well? Sure. Yeah. There's something that I, I, yeah, I mentioned to you once before, which is that even biology experiments, which, you know, social scientists might look at it and say, well, that's hard science. You know, maybe, maybe that holds up better, but that's not necessarily true. Um, so, so well, one example, Marsha McNutt, who was the editor in chief of science and who's now the president of the National Academy of Sciences, 
she's fond of telling the story at, at conferences when she's talking about reproducibility about some lab that was studying mice. I'm not sure what it was about. She doesn't really say. It was studying mice, and, and the lab was in Baltimore, and they got a particular result. Then there was other labs, uh, maybe in Ohio or somewhere else like that, that tried to replicate it, uh, and they found a different result. And then another lab in Baltimore, um, probably Johns Hopkins, did the study again and found the original result. And she jokes in, in conferences, you know, people were starting in the field were starting to wonder, is, is there some sort of Baltimore effect, you know, on this question? Um, but then they, they ended up finding, uh, through kind of collaboration and talking to each other, you know, finding that the, the wood shavings at the bottom of the cages that the mice were in, or the mice or rats, that those were a, a different type of wood in Baltimore than they were in the other in the other case. Maybe one was cedar, one was some other oh kind. My gosh. And it turns out that affected the way that the, the, the mice or rats you know, reacted. So, so it turns out that there are these kind of, of subtle differences. There's another case that I mentioned to you earlier that involved uh, a study of breast cancer cells. And so, so this scientist you know, wrote in, I think it was Nature or one of the Nature journals, about uh, an attempt to collaborate with another lab across the country on this uh, you know, study of breast cancer cells. And they kept getting different results and they could not figure out why. Uh, and they, they, this went on for literally like a year. They, they tried to make sure that everything about the experiments um, was the same. And they just you know, were just you know, basically banging their heads against the wall, trying to figure out you know, what is going on here. And so they, they finally, when they, when they traveled back and forth and, you know, tried to observe what's, what exactly is going on in the lab, they found out that at this particular point in the experiment, and look, I'm not a molecular biologist. If any of your listeners are, they're, they're going to be able to tell that I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But they were processing the tissue by mixing it with something called collagenase digest to try to separate out cells from the tissue. And so at the lab, one of the labs that, that was in uh, Berkeley, the tissues were digested in tubes that had half the concentration and were stirred on this platform uh, at, a, at a very slow speed for a long time, 18 to 24 hours. Whereas in Boston, the, you know, where the original experiment was, it was stirred with this collagenase mixture, whatever that is, at a higher rate for about six to eight hours. So that was the one difference between the way these two labs were doing the experiment, just how at this one particular technical point, they had to stir something with a solution. One lab stirred it faster for a shorter period of time. One lab stirred it like with more slowly for a longer period of time. And that was it. That Once they fixed that, then they got the same results. But I guess to, to go back to what I was saying, the fact that such a you know kind of technical, one might think minute difference in the, the experiment in fact, has a dramatic result on the the output on the you know the effect. I, I think that's something that needs to be built back into our you know scientists' theoretical understanding of you know how the world works. You know, it, it's hard to you know produce generalizable knowledge if everything you do can suddenly be thrown off by something you didn't even anticipate or know was important. So you need to like broaden your kind of theoretical understanding and explanation of what is important to experiments and why. But but that feeds back into the reproducibility problem too, because if if the excuse for every every experiment that doesn't replicate is well, it must have been one of these unknown factors. Well, that just means that I mean, it could just be an excuse, but at, at best, it means that well, we just don't understand what we're doing here. Like there could be any number of unknown factors that we've never measured and never thought of that are that make everything unpredictable. I mean, that's not very comforting as an excuse when you think about it. It also speaks to the great importance of material sharing, right? Like. 
when a lab publishes a paper, often there's not enough detail in the paper to fully redo their experiment. Like you can try to, you know, approximate their experiment, but at the end of the day, you know, if it's a biological study, you, you know, you don't know exactly how long they, you know, put that thing in the, in the machine, you know, and maybe if you put in a different amount of time, you might get a different result. In psychology, you often find that you can't find the exact protocol. So you don't know like, well, what wording did they use? You know, how exactly did they present this information? You just get this course approximation of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, fully disclosing the methods is, is super important. It is difficult because I, again, I think sometimes what's important about the methods is something that people didn't even think of until the rubber hit the road and they realize, oh, something doesn't match here. Like what we need, now we need to figure it out. So yeah, I don't I mean, obviously, I, I, look, in any case, I think the, the method sections could be really strengthened and made more detailed. Uh, I'm just saying, I don't know, they would fix everything because sometimes the biggest kind of methods problems turn up unexpectedly by, by something that no one thought was important until it turned out that it was. So I feel like there are two different issues here that can be easily conflated. One is that reality just can be really complicated. Like it can actually matter, you know, how long you stir a solution or something like that. And that can actually change a result. And if you're trying to develop a drug, like you might actually need to know how many minutes do I, do I stir the solution for it or things like that. And that's sort of this like irreducible complexity of reality that makes doing science harder, but we just have to account for. Uh, on the other hand, there are kind of bullshit excuses where it's like, well, maybe that's because in Florida, you know, psychology works differently or something like that, which, you know, I don't really buy at all. And, and I think sometimes, you know, well, the world truly is really complex, but sometimes scientists might hide behind that complexity and kind of blame what are actually just bad research processes on the kind of inherent complexity of everything. Yeah, I think that that definitely can occur. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, re the world is very complex. But yeah, I mean, I think that at most, I, I think it's scientists who, whose research fails to be replicated should at least start questioning, okay, how much do we really know about this subject? And should approach it with a little less, kind of, especially in, in certain fields of psychology, a little less kind of grandiose pronouncements about we we now know how humans think about uh, x y or z you know you, okay you, you studied a class of you know undergrads at, at your university like you you know how that class of undergrads thought like and maybe you don't even know that because maybe your research techniques aren't very good but you know to, to generalize from that to you know all of humanity you know maybe we should be a little less grandiose about those those types of, of claims in the first place and then we wouldn't have to later back off and say well actually i guess it is more complicated and people do think differently or have different cultural expectations or, or whatever it is that might influence that, you know, how they psychologically respond to something i think the generalizability issue is a really big one you know where you get a result on a particular population with a particular intervention and then you draw a generalization about it and you say, ah, well, now I've learned this general principle and that means I could go apply it to any population and even use it in a very different format. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily hold. One way in my own work that I've tried to deal with this is by actually trying to build tools, study them on populations that are very similar to the real populations that are going to use them in the exact format in which they'll be used. So if we build a digital intervention for uh, anxiety, for example, like our app Mindies, we can go study it on a population that's very much like the, the real users, and it's the exact same intervention. So it means that instead of like solving the generalizability problem, we're kind of skirting it where we don't actually need to solve it. Hmm. 
That's interesting. Yeah. So you're, you're saying just by changing how you sample things that, or, or experimental subjects that you're saying that kind of circumvents the generalizability problem? Yeah. Because, well, because if we can study an intervention on people that are basically the, you know, very similar to the people that we're actually using on and in the exact same format that we're going to use it, then we're just, all we need to know is that it works on that population that we studied. We don't necessarily need to know that it like works for anyone in the world when administered through any format. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I wonder how how broadly that would that sort of idea would be applicable or, or useful across different fields. Let's say, you know, education or international development. Um, yeah, you know, take international development. Like when you when you do a, a study of you know whether it's cash transfers or you know bed nets for malaria, et cetera, it, you're not dealing with a random sample of the world or, or even a random sample of developing countries. It's, it's typically done in some particular context. And so then, then you face the question, well, like, is a study from Kenya apply to Rwanda or does a study from India apply to Bangladesh? Like, so I think those questions are kind of always going to be with us. Well, I'm really interested in this idea of integrating lightweight but relatively high quality studies into doing other things. So it's not always logistically easy. Sometimes it might be really logistically difficult, but imagine if you're going to do cash transfers in a particular country, if you can actually weave a lightweight randomized control trial into the process. So add some randomization into the, pro- the normal process of giving out that money, for example. And suddenly now you're collecting high, hopefully high quality data on that exact population to see whether your intervention is actually working rather than doing a study in, on one population with some amount of money and then hoping it generalizes in this other area with a different amount of money on different sorts of people. So what are you saying? Try to do an RCT basically everywhere? Weave them into whatever your general processes are. So we use this concept in some of our work where we'll just have a never-ending randomized control trial. Whenever someone uses the product, we might do a randomization and then we're just and we're collecting you know, follow-up data. And so it's not like, oh, you go do the study once and then you generalize from it. It's like, no, your, your intervention itself is also a study simultaneously. Hmm. So would this mean things like uh, program improvement, so to speak? So, so I assume what you're talking about is not randomizing the program or in your, in your case, maybe an app or something against nothing or against a placebo or, or uh, against some, some other sort form of treatment that probably doesn't work, but might kind of be the equivalent of a placebo, right? I mean, it's hard to do placebos uh, in the real world, but instead, are you talking about, you know, some type of well, offering one variation of the program versus another to see if it can be improved? Right. So early on, you can often do it with a placebo as well, but you might have to recruit, you know, get people to consent to say, oh, okay, you might be getting a placebo. So um, an example of that is if you were doing cash transfers, you only have enough money to give it to, let's say, a thousand people. So if you only have enough money to give it to a thousand people, you could enroll 2000 people, but tell them like there's only a 50 percent chance you're going to get this payment. Right. And then after you do that, if you have shown in that population, you're getting good results then you can move to the other type where now you have different versions of your intervention. Now maybe half the people get this amount of money and half get that amount of money. And now, now you're starting to you know, study more nuanced questions or you know, half of them get money plus an educational intervention and half of them just get the money and, and so on. Uh, right. Or um, timing could matter. Maybe you know, some people get it once a month. Some people get it split up into four weeks. Like maybe people have budget constraints that you know, or better served by one or the other. Uh, but yeah, there's all sorts of questions about program improvement that matter. But 
I'm still wondering, like, how does that tie back into the generalizability question? Because if you do that study in, let's say, Kenya, and, it, and you, you know, start doing all the sorts of program improvement type questions, you might end up with a formulation of cash transfers that works really well for the people that you're giving it to in Kenya. Uh, but then if you want to do it in Nigeria, uh, don't you still have that same question? Well, uh, how much... In fact, maybe it's even worse in a way. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. Maybe it's even worse because now you've come up with a version of the program that is very specifically tailored to one group of people uh, or one population in Kenya, in this example. And maybe now it's going to be even more unlikely that that generalizes to uh, somebody somewhere else because maybe it won't be, instead of just the basic, like, you know, bare minimum, low, lowest common denominator version of the program that probably works a little bit everywhere. Maybe now you've got a highly tailored, highly specific program that like just is a mismatch somewhere else. I don't know. I'm just, just making that up, but um, just by, what could, couldn't that be the case? Well, the idea is that you don't need to generalize, right? If you're trying to, if your intervention is designed to target a specific population, you're making sure it works on that population. And then if you were going to go move it to another area, Ideally, you're doing exactly the same thing. You're weaving in some form of randomization to also be doing a trial there. So it's like the idea of running a study and of delivering the intervention get intertwined. And so they're just, you know, you're always running a study whenever you're giving the intervention. I mean, yeah, if you, if you introduce any program or intervention or policy in a new place, by thing, we're, we're going to start out with the kind of baseline RCT to see whether it works or not here. And then if it does, then, then move forward with the other you know, it, it kind of more improvement type questions, then yeah, I agree. I guess you're avoiding ever needing to generalize uh, in that sense. But I guess the, the cost of it is you have to be have the capacity and willingness to keep doing RCTs forever. That's why the key sort of aspect there is, can you make it lightweight enough and just integrate it in the deployment of the intervention itself? So rather than thinking of it as this two-stage process where you like go run this really expensive RCT to see if the thing works and then you roll it out, it's like you no know, rolling it out and running RCT are kind of so intertwined that you just kind of yeah it's just baked into the process. So so I'm really interested in that approach because I think it's a, a an interesting way to solve the generalizability problem and also to iterate to make interventions better and better. So they're not the static thing; they actually keep improving because you effectively can be continually A/B testing as, as occurs with sort of any software product. Right. Well, look, I mean, I, I think what you're saying makes a tremendous amount of sense because. One of the big problems is that generalizability is really hard. <laughs> um, I, I, do you know Eva Vivalt? I do, yeah. She, she's written some really cool stuff about generalizability. Yeah, well, she's analyzed you know, several hundred papers on a bunch of different types of interventions in international development. And her findings, basically, to, to be simplistic about it, is, is that, as I recall, like if, if you know one RCT on a particular type of program, and you want to try to predict what's the RCT, what's going to be the findings of the next one randomly picked, you might as well be flipping a coin. So knowing any one particular study results doesn't really give you much information about the, the next study's results. Because so, sometimes results that are significant in one place, they don't, there is insignificant in another place, not to draw a bright line. But, and sometimes the sign flips. Sometimes the program that works some, one place, like turns out it, it seems to have a negative impact somewhere else. So if all you knew was one of those studies, you'd have a hard time generalizing to a different place and actually figuring out what might happen, which by the way, that just speaks to the need to like continually test and improve in all those places rather than just taking knowledge from somewhere else and hoping it works. I once tried to make a list of all the reasons that studies don't tend to generalize. 
And it's quite fascinating. There, there really are so many different reasons. I think I came up with 12 of them, why I can fail to generalize, ranging from like, oh, the original result was just noise. You know, it was just, uh, wasn't even real in the first place to you can have a quality issue. Like maybe the study tested really high quality, but then when it got rolled out somewhere else, there's much lower quality. Because, you know, as you touched on very briefly before, a bad implementation of any intervention will always fail. And I, and I think that people don't always recognize this. They're like, oh, you know, someone tested meditation for anxiety and it didn't work. So meditation for anxiety doesn't work. Well, okay, but a bad version of anything will find no effect. So it it's, can be hard to generalize in that way. Another one is that often the dosage differs. So it's like, you know, let's say it's an educational intervention and it's like, maybe the study did a two hour intervention. And then when they rolled it out, it was half an hour. Okay, well, that's a big difference. Or maybe it was two days and then they made it into a three hour thing. So there's just so many of these different issues. And then of course there are cultural factors, right? Like there's certain things just just wouldn't fly at all if you tried to introduce them. Like let's say you you know you have some kind of you know condom use intervention, but you're trying to put it in an area where people are like actually morally opposed to using condoms. Like okay, that's probably going to be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, there's so many reasons. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's something where there's a, a growing area of literature, but I think that it's something that you know deserves a lot more study to understand when and why something might generalize or not. Because I mean, as, as, as much as I would love it, if, if you could do RCTs always everywhere and everything, there's going to be a lot of places where you can't, where there's the, there isn't the political will, you know, where there's the capacity to do it. I mean, it, it, there's just a lot of reasons. So I think it'd be good if we had more nuanced understanding of when and how reliably can we take knowledge from one place and use it somewhere else. And, you know, I, I feel like we might have let some other fields off the hook a little bit too much because I, I really think that the, these kinds of issues of reproducibility cut across many areas of science. And I remember from an article you wrote, it was, it was really interesting, called Escaping Science's Paradoxes. You talked about uh, Amjan and uh, Bayer about, uh, what, what, do you remember the result there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, those, those are pharmaceutical companies that... Uh, eight or 10 years ago, both published articles in which they, they claimed that when they try to reproduce academic experiments in their own labs, hoping to find it works. I mean, these, these are not, pharmaceutical companies are not out to get anybody at this stage of their research. It's not like they're, they're trying to be at the gotcha police. They're, they're hoping something works so that they can take it further and develop it into a drug. And, you know, it, most of the time uh, they said it wouldn't replicate and I've, you know, there's nothing they could do to get it to work. Yeah, I think it was like 70 or 80% of the time they couldn't get the result to work in their lab. Yeah. Yeah. And I've happened to meet folks from other pharmaceutical companies as well, like uh, Pfizer, who will, who say the same thing. And this is anecdotal, but they'll say, yeah, about two thirds of the time when we try to replicate an academic experiment, we just can't get it to work. And again, it, it could be that there's always some mysterious factor, like the, what kind of wood shavings are in the bottom of the cage of the, the mice uh, that you're studying could be that the rate of stirring matters. I mean, it could be. But again, if the, if the academic literature in those areas is so full of those unknown hidden factors that no one understands or, or can predict when they'll matter or when they won't, then it's really hard to have a kind of progressive adding to knowledge in a way that actually benefits humanity rather than just, you know, adds to someone's list of publications. I mean, what we should want is not just more publications. What we want is more publications, particularly in that area, you know, cell biology, et cetera, more publications that lead to greater understanding of how the human body works and ultimately greater ability to prevent diseases or cure diseases or, or address aging and issues like that. 
And you can't do that if the whole enterprise is so infected by either bad research practices or hidden factors that no one knows what they are and can't ever identify except, you know, uh, in the abstract, in retrospect, when something doesn't replicate. Well said. Uh, Stuart, thanks so much for coming on. This was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to do it. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at clearerthinkingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 321-341-4669. To find out more about Spencer, visit spencergreenberg.com. To find out more about Stuart, take a look at his bio in the show notes. And to find out more about our show, visit clearerthinkingpodcast.com. If you like the show, we hope you'll rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, I just want to say a big thank you to those of you who have been leaving reviews for the show. It lets us know that you value our work and it helps us to spread the show's ideas and book amazing guests. So thank you for doing that. And if you haven't left a review yet, now's a great time to do it. We also hope you'll subscribe to our email newsletter called One Helpful Idea. Each week, we'll send you one idea that we think is really valuable that you can read about in just 30 seconds, along with that week's new podcast episode. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website, clearerthinkingpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.